came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Metting. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hi, Jason. How are you? Good. How are you today? I'm getting enough sleep. Sleep deprived. Yeah, sleep deprived. No, I am getting enough sleep and I've been prepared for sleep deprivation for years. As you know, I've been like practicing for this, you know? You have, but it's, it's a different kind of sleep deprivation. I know. Well, my little research assistant is thankfully sleeping better than me. So, you know. Congratulations <laughs> on the, the new research assistant. Thank you. Thank you. I don't no, know if um, everybody knows that you had a baby. Yeah. His name is Arteni. He can smile, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> you sure it's not wind? Maybe. So he could do that. Can. Well, yeah, we used to call it smiling anyway. And some people are like, yeah, they're probably just gassy. You're like, no, they're smiling at me. I'm convinced. He's like, yeah. So delighted to see you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he can't do much, but he's fine. Yeah. But you probably end up using your musical talents as a parent, right? Yeah, so we do, you know, we have like a full-on routine. Yeah. You can imagine, right? This is how we run the household. So we read, and his first book was Angela Davis' biography, which I just read out loud. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Good choice. <laughs> I'm not sure it was on the list for newborns, but never mind. He seems to enjoy it. So I'm sure he learned a lot. And now we're moving towards listening to songs. So all we do is singing Russian nursery rhymes. We definitely, we've talked about this before. We need more music and we need more of the arts in science right so i'm glad that you're doing that in a practical way with your new kid <laughs> Absolutely, and i'm grateful that in today's episode we're not going to listen to any nursery rhymes no. in russian or english or any other language but actually going to talk about some really serious and very cool music thanks to all of you listening today for being with us to discuss solidarity justice and political ideas generally related to disasters this season as you all know, too often it, the science of disasters, as well as actions around reducing risk or recovering from major event impacts, are absolutely depoliticized and addressed with normative ideologies, frameworks, strategies, and tools. Um, indeed. And to challenge the status quo, we need solidarity, but also creativity and care and communicative talent. We're always so pleased to host musicians and other artists on our show. And, you know, you listeners know we've done it in pretty much every season, I think. So today we're really excited to sit down with sing singer, songwriter, writer and podcaster David Rovix, who has produced an incredible body of anti-capitalist and community grounded work, emerging as a prominent social critic on issues that we really care about on this podcast, such as militarization, globalization, environmental crisis, consumerism, gentrification, and many others. David is based in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and tours globally. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, welcome to the show, David. I've been a fan of your music for a long time, and just great to sit with you. So we are 
interested in knowing more about how you became the person that you are. And we do this with all of our guests. And we especially like to know why you think the way that you do and write and speak about these topics, why they're important to you. From your music, we know that you have a commitment for sharing important history. And I'm sure that your music is grounded in countless hours of study. So as well as telling us a bit about who you are and why you are that person, what kind of literature do you read? Because we, we love reading on this show. I'm interested in what you read and draw inspiration from too. I'm just about done with the age of revolutions, basically about the French Revolution and the English Industrial Revolution and a lot of other things happening around the early 1800s. And it's just a fantastic book. But I read a lot of books like that and I read nearly as much fiction or literature as I would like to and as I think I should. Because I know people have said that if you want to understand a historical period the best, what you need to do is read the popular literature of the time. And I'm sure that's true, but I just find that there's not enough time to do all the things, anything close to what I really want to do in life. So I end up going right to the dry history to get the, what it feels like the biggest overview. I'm always looking for overviews and yeah. But the disaster theme is, is very interesting to me because I think so much of life is produced by how we cope with disasters. And I think that's certainly true of my life and my development as an artist. I guess informed by trauma is the way that we often put these things in the modern lingo. The disaster of moving from New York City to the suburbs of New York, being separated from my nanny was the first sort of emotional trauma that I think definitely has a lot to do with my development as an artist, although it's really hard to say when it comes to such early events. But certainly the disaster that occurred in my mid-20s when my best friend was shot to death in San Francisco, that was a disaster that was instrumental in completely transformative and is probably the main reason why I became a decent songwriter because I didn't write anything good until that happened. I mean, that was when I started writing good songs. Yeah, that's, it's interesting the way that, that your own life goes in directions you might not have expected. And you spoke to the disaster as process because we tend to frame disasters this way. It's interesting that you do too, because so many people in our field frame disasters as an event and consequently think about the hazard as the kind of trigger of the disaster where uh, it seems to me like you share an understanding with us about disasters emanating from this production of risk which is a process over time so it's cool to be on the same page understanding what it, what brings us to a disaster with someone who's uh, creative, who's outside of our field. When I think of disasters, I also think of the shock doctrine in Naomi Klein's book. Mm. And uh, that seems so relevant, how disasters are used as opportunities for doing terrible things by some. And of course, disasters can be transformative in so many positive ways as well for other folks, and depending on the disaster. But I guess this is true of even the worst, uh, most terrible events. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, disaster as a site of political action and possibility. And the state is really fragile for a second. The status quo mm -hmm. is fragile for a second. And that was a big thing for me in my career to, to realize that people come together. That's when we see the greatest solidarity, mutual aid really comes to the fore in a disaster. And I think that reveals the best part of 
who we are as human beings. Absolutely. I think very often in scholarship we don't talk about emotions, but this is something that you referred to straight away. Um, mm. And so I think your emotions come very clearly through your music. And so your music responds to what you are witnessing in the world. So can you talk us perhaps through your creative process? You know, how do your songs come about and how you aspire to affect your listeners? So I think the whole thing about communicating through songs is you're reaching people on an emotional level. And uh, this has been studied actually some years ago here about these studies. There was a study of people and how their brains were affected by listening to music. And when you sing words, they go to different parts of the brain than when you speak them. So people are processing songs in an emotional way and in the first place, once they're hearing words sung. And uh, there's so many little sort of emotional tricks like that, that musicians all tend to learn or figure out without being told that this is you know, how it works scientifically or whatever. When you're communicating or singing your song, you can see the results in the audience. Of course, if it's a sad song and you see people crying, then there's very clear circumstantial evidence that it's a sad song. It really was a sad song, you know? Yeah. yeah. But the most important thing for communicating in songs is not to tell people what I think or what I feel, but to, just to tell the story and to let people draw whatever they're going to draw from the story emotionally and intellectually. And that's far more potent than telling people what I think or what I feel. That's why I think the term protest the music is one that a lot of artists don't like and including me because that's not what i'm doing i may be communicating a left perspective you know i don't think that anybody should be starving so if that makes me a protest musician because i'm protesting against starvation then i'm a protest musician but i'm just telling stories and that's what most good artists throughout history are doing because nobody wants to be beaten over the head with somebody else's perspective it's just not how we're wired. We want to come to our own conclusions. Children don't want to be told what to think either. You know, if you're a parent, then you also know you have that same kind of strategy of don't tell them what to think and help you create an environment where they'll um, develop their perspective. They'll be nice to each other if you're nice to everybody around you. They're going to be nice to other people too. If you mm -hmm. tell them, be nice, you know, that's, I'll forget it. You know, then of course it's not going to work. It'll backfire if anything, but it's certainly not going to help, you know. Yeah. How do you come up with your stories? Is it just current affairs or where do you find the story? When I'm writing about current events, a lot of it is just news that I'm coming across radio or podcasts or reading newspapers. Mm -hmm. Nowadays I do on apps, but I'm still reading the same newspapers and then a lot of history. And then of course, since I've been doing this a long time, one of the great things about the job is people who know about some kind of interesting historical event tell me about it. My favorite aspect of history to write about what has been accomplished by social movements, you know, because I think people need to know about what's happened in the past with social movements and how much they can accomplish. Those are the stories. Whenever I come across any one that I think I can do any justice to, 
Mm. Those are the stories I gravitate towards most, which is always related to disasters of so many different kinds. We're in the midst of one of those periods of upheaval globally right now. I think it's hard to recognize when you're in the middle of it, but it's clearly happening and it's happening for all the same kinds of reasons that it was happening in the 1840s. You have now globally something like a billion people who are food insecure right now, hundreds of millions on the verge of starvation. And then you had the same kind of situation in, in the 1840s in Europe and it resulted in upheaval across Europe from Ireland to Russia everywhere. And it resulted in revolutions all over. Ultimately, in most European countries by the 1850s or so, having parliaments and some form of representative democracy, direct consequence of these rebellions. And these rebellions were a direct consequence of, of crop failures throughout Europe. In Germany, people tend to know about 1848, but in, in the Anglosphere, People know that there was a famine in Ireland, and that's about all they know about the 1840s, which is a very important and relevant thing to know about. But while there was a famine in Ireland, there was hunger throughout all of Europe, and there was crop failures to all of Europe, and the potato was failing everywhere. It's those moments in history. That's what people write about, and that's when societies change, is those disaster moments. To, to think about how the disasters are so pivotal for people personally, as well as for societies. What you're talking about is this theme that we've been coming back to over and over again, us all being tied in together, the interconnectedness that perhaps is very often not recognized at all. And that's very often what the problem is. The ideology of individualism convinced us so well, right? Every man for themselves, so to say, which is, of course, not the case. And as you were talking, I... Just as a side, I've been obsessing with Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. I don't know if you've been mm. listening to it. No. 11 seasons, like 600 episodes. Oh, it's the best thing ever. You have a lot of spare hours. <laughs> this is how Great. to kill them. <laughs> Great. So, so revolutions, like from throughout history? Yeah, yeah. So the latest two seasons were all about Russian Revolution. Oh, uh, like 130 episodes in Russian Revolution. Oh my God, oh, something else. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, so much great history, great stories, and people rising to the occasion in so many ways in those moments in history. You know, there's so much to say about that. I had a couple of thoughts while you were speaking there about the telling of stories through history that are obscured or omitted intentionally. You know, like my kids are in the public school system in Florida, and so much of the civics or history stuff is about American exceptionalism. And having those alternative stories is just super, super important. And I saw maybe you have a collaboration with Zen Education. Is that right? Something. Yeah, they, yeah. they use my songs uh, yeah. in their materials yeah, sometimes. Cool. And I'm a big fan of everything that they're doing. Yeah. Of course, the Working Class History Project, and there's other great ones where they do a lot of little posts about the day and history and popular education materials. Yeah. Yeah, I love that you've been able to tie your music into that. And um, the other thing that, that just came to mind, and we'll kind of segue to the next thing I want to ask you is in the disaster field. 
you know, the dominant approach is the way to avoid having a disaster in your life is just to become stronger. We use the terminology around resilience, but that's very much fits with a neoliberal state with an agenda to better yourself and be a good consumer, right? A good citizen and compete with everybody else. And I love that we're having these conversations about the importance of interconnectedness and solidarity. And I wanted to ask you about an essay you published recently in the radical newspaper Slingshot about finding common ground in the working class. And the essay, if anyone wants to look at it, is titled, If We Divide, They Will Conquer. And you argue that the left is failing to bring any change because they focus on how some people are oppressed and how others are privileged. And you write in this essay, I quote, it is clear that our movement is broken. The liberals currently in power failing to provide for the population as usual. And the right wing is using the failure of liberal democracy, that is capitalist pseudo-democracy, and hopelessly divided band of identity obsessed people shouting at each other that we once called the left as a stepping stone in their ongoing rise to power. So this is such a great critique. And I wanted to ask you what kind of principles and strategies can bring together disparate groups and individuals on the left and provide grants for organizing. And then, yeah, and then like personally, who do you like to organize with and why? I think the, the really crucial thing to understand about identity politics and about um, the history of and the current reality of marginalization and oppression of so many different groups of people based on race, gender, in color, national origin, disability, class, etc. The most important thing, perhaps, to understand about the marginalization of people in the United States historically and in other societies, but I'm specifically thinking of this one in that essay, is that racism specifically and also, historically, discrimination against people based on their origins or religious origins or national, where they're actually from or what religion they actually practice. These things, race, religion, and nationality, have, among others, have been used as the primary tools for dividing and conquering and keeping and ruling this society for the ruling class, the billionaire class, the tiny little fraction of the population that runs this country and has always been in power of this country. I mean, people need to remember, in case they don't know, that the biggest landowner in the United States at the time of the American Revolution was the first president of the country, George Washington. And it was a revolution of landowners and slave owners against a, a colonial power. And it wasn't about liberating people. It was about running the country for themselves rather than on behalf of the British colonists. And the rest of the history of this country bears that out, is this country has been ruled by the wealthy classes forever. And that continues to be the case today. And it has always been the case since the rich have been in power, which is since they've landed in North America from Europe, is they have used race and origin and religion as tools of dividing the working class majority or the peasant majority or whatever, depending on what period of history we were talking about, whether the term working class was used yet or not. But 
it's always been the majority of the population of this country has been poor in one form or another, whether enslaved or indentured or tenant farmers or sharecroppers or pioneers, you know, sent out to steal land from the Indians because they couldn't afford to buy any or live anywhere on the East Coast. You know, that's the whole history of this country, using one group against another group for the benefit of the rich. And so now in the modern era, the liberal media, which is run by billionaires too, has managed to convince a large amount of the population that uh, to focus exclusively on forms of marginalization other than economic, other than class. And doing that is a weaponization of marginalization. It is a weaponization of identity politics on behalf of the capitalists. They have turned anti-racism into a into a weapon to use to keep the population divided. And that's what they're doing with it. That's what the establishment is doing with it. They used to talk about the liberal media when I was young and there wasn't the liberal media, but now there is. So when we're talking about the liberal media, I'm literally talking about like CNN and NPR. I'm talking about the media that they might as well call themselves mouthpieces of the Democratic National Committee because that's what they are. That's their new whole line. We have a society that's divided around all these lines other than the main form of division. I don't know how you could find a measure to come up with any way of saying that there is something other than class that is the biggest thing dividing us in this society. I mean, the wealth of the rich is so vast. And the poverty of the rest of the people is so vast. I just can't imagine how you could possibly say that there's anything else that is more divisive in this society than class, you know, but it's the thing that they never talk about. If you ever, if you listen to national public radio or CNN, or you read the New York times at least nine times out of 10, if class is mentioned, it's in the context of race, gender or disability. And that creates a very warped impression because reality in this century is that most people are poor and most of them are white, which is not to say that white people are disproportionately more poor than other people, but they ignore that intentionally in order to, to divide and rule. And it's a really sick strategy and it's working. And I was just thinking as you talked there, David, that, that the reason it works is that it immediately undermines discussions about race and religion because people are facing the reality of everyday precarity. It's hard to think beyond that if you're being told that that's not the problem. So yeah, it really resonates with what we talk about in disaster studies, because there's a lot of people that want to talk about anti-racism or equity, but they want to use it in a kind of liberal form, which is, you know, everybody should just be given a platform or be included rather than let's talk about how we dismantle the system that creates these conditions for people. Yeah, being included at a broken table yeah. is the title of a recent piece that I published, yeah. something along those lines. But yeah, whether you're talking about the broken table in, in the, at the climate talks in Egypt mm. or the broken table in this country that people want to be included. I mean, people want to be included. And there's so many different 
ways to go with that concept. When I was talking about this broken table that people want to be included at in this essay, I was talking about the climate talks which were going on and also in Los Angeles, they've got a new category for the Grammys for an annual song for social change. And I mean, this is the record industry, you know, which has done everything over the past century to make sure that social change is not one of the things that we're singing about, you know, in the music industry. And now they have an award for it. I mean, this is talking about being included at a broken table. And then literally, you can hear liberals talking in Florida in the wake of the multiple hurricanes that have made millions of people destitute in that state. And you will hear people talking about how are we going to distribute the aid in a way that's equitable and doesn't doesn't see people who have historically marginalized communities receive less aid. That's really important. But the way that they will solve that kind of problem in some communities, like you walk the streets of Portland and you, you're literally tripping over people who are dying, living in tents. There are thousands and thousands of people living in wallowed encampments that are throughout this city. But on the news, on NPR, you'll hear about this new subsidized housing that has created a space for 18 artists of color. And that's wonderful, but how is that even related to dealing with the crisis at hand? I mean, pissing in the wind doesn't even begin to how stupid that is. We have such a crisis. This society is collapsing around us, whether it's because of the insane housing situation or because of actual climate change disasters and, and horrible urban planning. We are in such a disaster. And the idea that we're going to get out of this disaster by prioritizing uh, certain homeless people over others, it's divide and rule nonsense. I want to ask you a little bit more about Portland. I know that you're really deeply involved with your local community. So can you tell us how and why this connection with people comes from? You know, what is your broader outlook on collective action and perhaps on solidarity? What are the key things for you that you have learned throughout your life about bringing about change through this collective action and solidarity? What I've learned, what I've seen, at least in my life, is when social movements are existing that are really growing and are functional and are having an impact, there's a real emphasis on solidarity and on inclusion and on common goals. And one of the most impressive aspects of the global justice movement in the late 90s was the successful binding together of of the goals of the labor movement and the goals of the environmental movement, which were always things that those running the active industries especially have managed to keep us divided from each other as if we didn't all, you know, share the same planet. Mm -hmm. But finally, by the late 90s, there was a real coming together of these movements and a real seeing eye to eye of, in these movements. And that was, I think, a wonderfully threatening moment for the powers that be on this planet. 
That's certainly what I've seen in my lifetime and in my reading of all the things that have gone on prior to my lifetime, which of course is the vast majority of human civilization I was not around for. But my reading of it is is also that it is these moments in time when when people are managing to actually come together and see past their differences and find all the things that they have in common when social movements can be successful and threatening. And also they are the most wonderful atmosphere to be within because this sort of sense of togetherness and the sense of the future and the sense of people working together, mutual aid and the artistic output is tremendous. It's really an amazing thing to be around and you know when it's happening when it's happening. A nonprofit group or an NGO spending a whole bunch of money to put on an event and a grassroots social movement, you know, you can tell the difference. And I'm not saying NGOs shouldn't spend lots of money to put on events. They should. But you can tell the difference between that and a grassroots social movement easily in terms of just the artistic output of the movement. That's one of many ways. So how do you involve people? How do you kind of make sure that local people in your community get involved in these different grassroots activities, events, and I guess, yeah, act in solidarity, right? Or perhaps start thinking in the same way and organize, hopefully. I'm much more of a traveling artist than a community organizer, I would have to say. And I only really even made any serious efforts at becoming any kind of a community organizer when I could no longer tour in 2020. Mm -hmm. But as an artist, what I'm trying to do, and I think to some extent successfully, the role that art generally has to play in organizing people is to foster a sense of community, and which is what art does really well. It communicates on an emotional level. And when you have a bunch of people together in a physical space and they're all listening to music and singing together, dancing together, however they're expressing their togetherness, they are expressing it in one form or another at a musical event generally, whether it's a quiet, folky kind of musical event or more upbeat kind of thing involving a drum a drummer and a band. It's still a communal kind of experience that is really important for people to have that sense of community, that sense that they're not just a bunch of individuals on Twitter. They're actually part of a movement and they're, they're out there in physical spaces. That's, I think, more important now than ever to actually get people away from their computers and into the real world and into physical spaces, interacting with each other. And the music is and it's one of those things that, that can really foster that. And then when the music is speaking about what's going on around us and talking about what's happening in the world and politically relevant, that is powerful too, because then people get an education and they have more of a sense of community because not only are they sharing a musical event together or a communal event together, a cultural event, but they're actually sharing the same ideas and they're hearing their own ideas sung back at them in a way that's hopefully more eloquent than what they're maybe used to. That's the power of songs is hopefully you're mm. boiling their thoughts down into two or three minutes in a way that's really potent. And so as an artist, I'm trying to bring people together and trying to help them feel like they're not alone and that they're part of a community. As an organizer, what I've been trying to do, and I think probably just as hard to measure whether I'm having any impact at this, but it's the same kind of thing. One of the things I've done or somebody has done anyway, I don't know, you know, if it was necessarily me, but there's been thousands of stickers all over town that have defaced massive amounts of public property and 
these are around eviction defense and around housing issues, and they tend to go up whenever there's a protest that's about to happen in a particular place. Mm -hmm. So then people are going to see all this all this material about fighting against evictions. This is just the same kind of tactic as advertisers use. You know, I'm just trying to create an impression that there's more happening than there might really be happening. And I want I want everybody to think that. Not just people who I want to come to the protests, but also I want the cops to think that too. And I want mm. the mayor to think that too. So I think it's really nice when there's lots of those kinds of materials near anywhere that politicians might be hanging out like City Hall. They should also know that this is happening and that there are going to be responses if they try to do things like evict a family from a home, that if this family chooses to try to stay, that there's going to be a lot of people coming out in solidarity with them. And the city should know that and because it's true. But also, you know, to make sure that's true, other people have to know that too. The people who are going to be coming out need to know that and the cops need to know that. Everybody needs to know that. You know, so the propaganda can be effective. The same propaganda can be helpful for both organizing people who might come to a protest as well as for educating the powers that be that this is happening and that they're not going to be able to just evict somebody without something happening. And that may often and more more often than not make them decide not to try to evict somebody in the first place, which is the weird aspect to a lot of these kinds of situations, it's not necessarily the, uh, the big sensational kind of confrontation that represents what's really going on here. There's a lot more subtle stuff happening, which is not to say that we're not losing. We're losing. I mean, rents keep on going up. People keep on moving into tents. Gentrification continues. It's horrible. But in terms of some of the tactics that the state might use in some other Towns. There's a lot of stuff I have a lot harder time trying to get away with in a place like Portland. Most people never resist eviction is the problem. But if people want to, I think there's a lot of potential in a town like this for what might happen in the future. My main involvement in community organizing has been around housing issues. And they managed to prevent the wave of evictions somehow. I mean, it's amazing how much at all levels subsidizes so many people in society who pay our outrageous rents. There's so many of these other sort of subsidies like food stamps and child support and all this kind of stuff. Like it actually, it wouldn't have been necessary for me anyway, and I'm sure for a lot of other people, if the rent wasn't 250% as high as it was 15 years ago, you know? Yeah, but that's a, that's a much harder conversation to have with people who are profiting from that inflation, you know, and they obviously mm -hmm. they want to keep those people happy. And so the easier thing is to get do a subsidy, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been amazing to talk to you, David, and get another perspective for this season on solidarity. And I really appreciate your work, your body of work. And I often have you on in my car or at home and my kids are pretty familiar with a few of your songs. Your impact on uh, community is beyond Portland. I'm sure most of the places you tour have collectives, have organizations who are also drawing inspiration from your work um, and making it part of their organizing. So I think the impact is pretty wide and I appreciate you and thanks for spending time with us. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. 
You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Xenia, Jason, and me, David Ropix, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. 